Salt was very valuable in ancient Rome. Sal dried fish and it fertilised crops. It made wine last longer and it cut the bitterness of greens. It also, according to Pliny the Elder, was part of war. The rumour goes that soldiers were even paid in the white gold. Salt, or sal, is the root of the word salary. In 21st century America, there's a big debate about salaries. For years, political campaigns have appealed to a squeezed middle class and hearkened back to an era when raising a family on one income was possible. But the data show a more complex picture. What many Americans believe about what's been happening to their incomes over the past few decades is flat wrong. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how are incomes changing? Reports of the slow death of American incomes have been exaggerated. Since the turn of the millennium, hourly earnings have grown steadily in real terms. While those at the top have taken most of the gains, in the past few years, the poorest have done well too. Where does that leave those in the middle? What's behind the two decades of growing incomes? And why hasn't a richer population brought a more contented politics? With me this week to talk about American incomes, how the US economy is working for most voters, and how politicians seem to have a slightly misplaced perception of what's actually been going on in America in economic terms over the past couple of decades are Idris Kaloon in Washington and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, what has been going on in the district? Hi, John. Uh, what is going on? Well, today, which is uh, Thursday, the day we're recording this, America hit its debt ceiling officially, which sounds scarier than it is because now the Treasury does extraordinary measures for a few months. But these have become so ordinary that no one notices that they're going on. And Charlotte, what about New York? Any rat updates for us? The big news in New York politics is George Santos, who's this Republican congressman who seems to have lied about all sorts of things. But I really enjoyed Simon's piece this week on economic data and give credit to him for opening his story with Cardi B. Come for the Cardi B lead, stay for the incisive economic analysis. So I'm looking forward to talking about it today. I actually had a very banal interview with George Santos when he was a candidate about why the GOP was making inroads among Hispanics. And, you know, I went back and read it and I don't think there were very many fibs in there. So, um, you know, he, he, he presented as normal, at least. But it makes me think that I should run background checks on everyone I talk to. Well, that could be an economist scoop. George Santos told the truth about some stuff. Maybe we should run that story. <laughs> OK, as Charlotte said, Simon Rabinovich has written this great piece on the US economy and particularly on American incomes this week. When Simon and I chatted earlier in the week, I asked him why he's been writing about Cardi B, as Charlotte mentioned, who's not generally known for her economic analysis. 
Well, she made some waves a couple of weeks ago talking about just the crazy price of lettuce. Now, I'm not entirely sure where she's shopping, but she said that she had found lettuce for as much as $7. Uh, where I am, it's it's not quite that expensive, but it's certainly more expensive than it used to be. And Cardi B's point was that if she thought that this lettuce was crazy and you know, unaffordable, then surely middle-class people or people in the hood, as she put it, would think it's even crazier. And I, I thought that was an interesting starting point because you know, what that gets to, it's not just the price of lettuce, as we know, the price of lots of things has gone up. And that kind of gets at this bigger question about what exactly has been going on with incomes in America. Ultimately, what matters with incomes is not how much people are making, but how much they can actually afford to purchase with what they're making. So if your wages are going up, prices are going up even more quickly, then you're left with less. So Cardi B and her letters are relevant here because when you're looking at income and income growth, you have to adjust for inflation, right? And then you have a choice of deflators, to use the technical term. If you use the one that has Cardi B's letters in it, then you get one answer. If you use a deflator that assumes that actually people switch and change their behavior according to what prices are, maybe you know buy spinach instead of lettuce because it's cheaper, then you get a slightly different answer. Is that a fair summary? That, that's exactly right. The not switching bit refers to, you know, what typically is, is talked about when, when we talk about inflation in America, which is the consumer price index. You know, it's been rising at roughly a 7% year on year uh, rate in recent months. People talk about this as the rate of inflation in America. There's a different inflation index, though, which is the personal consumption expenditure price index. So it's a bit of a mouthful. What's important about the PCEPI is that, first of all, the Federal Reserve looks at it as the most important indicator of inflation. But secondly, one of the reasons why the Fed focuses on it is that whereas the CPI basically looks at a fixed, unchanging basket of goods and services, the PCEPI is updated every month based on what people are actually buying. And so over time, PCE measured inflation is a little bit lower than CPI measured inflation. And when you then adjust wages, by these two different inflation indexes, you get very different conclusions. Shall we back up a little bit and talk about the genesis of this piece? You and I have been talking about American incomes for a while because incomes are looking at this big question of how well the economy is working for most Americans, right? And what intrigued me, and I think also got you interested in, is there are a lot of competing claims about this flying around, right? There are some charts that show, well, actually, income growth for most Americans has been pretty good over the past few years. And there are some people who claim that actually, if you're in the middle in America, you've just been stuck, you know, treading water for decades. And that has political effects because people get cross when they feel stuck, right? That's exactly right. And it is quite remarkable when you look at the different claims and, and the different charts supporting it, because it's not that people are inventing the data or cooking the books. It's just, you know, highlighting different pieces of the puzzle and then using different ways of measuring the pieces, you know, the deflators that we were talking about, CPI versus PC, or focusing on the lowest quintile or the middle quintiles or the upper quintile, you come to radically different conclusions. And we tried to kind of assess, you know, what really is the best way of looking at the data uh, and therefore kind of what is the most reasonable conclusion that you can draw. So what is the Simon R. take on how the American economy is working for Americans in terms of the incomes it's delivering to them? In aggregate, 
there has been income growth, especially when you use the right inflation deflator. Pre-tax, that income growth has clearly been much stronger for the wealthiest Americans than it has been for middle-class Americans or the poorest Americans. The little bit of good news is that post-tax, for the poorest Americans, the lowest quintile of income earners, there has been big lift-up post-tax, thanks to big transfers, thanks to lower tax bills. Uh, Unfortunately for middle-class Americans, income growth really has been quite tepid uh, for some decades now. And the picture was actually less bleak than I expected it to be. I mean, you have a very good chart that goes with this piece that shows real incomes, incomes adjusted for inflation, declining through the 70s and 80s, and then increasing since the late 90s, right? So the picture, to me at least, on incomes seems to be that in over the past 10, 15 years, the story's actually been quite good. If you want to understand the kind of disappointment over the long term, you have to really go back and look at the 80s and early 90s. That's absolutely right. And so then I think it then begs the question, well, it begs several questions. Uh, One question is politically the narrative, which certainly helped to propel Donald Trump to success and equally animates a lot of the, the Joe Biden economic policy, is this idea that Americans are doing badly, that middle class Americans are being left behind. But certainly looked at the trends in the last couple of decades you know, I think there's a fair bit of good economic news which hasn't been faithfully reported and has not made its way into political stump speeches. So I think there is a, a question about whether or not the headlines uh, and a lot of the discussion has been misleading. Um, I think a second question then is, if you do look at the numbers and, and you you agree with the conclusion that, that actually income growth has been pretty decent, what's gone right over the last decade? And I think one answer to that is that the labor market has been considerably tighter. So there has been a lot more demand for workers, for low-income workers. Unemployment before the pandemic had fallen to a five-decade low. Uh, in recent months, it's, it's kind of fallen back towards that five-decade low of about, about 3.5%. And that is leading to some significant pre-tax income increases for poorer Americans. That clearly is a very positive trend. Charlotte, how did Simon's piece change your perception of how the US economy is working for most Americans? It was a reminder of just how careful you have to be in examining economic data, because depending on how you slice it, it's a really different picture that's presented, right? So if you look at the past 40 years to 2019, as Simon laid out, the highest fifth of income saw an increase of 114% in income compared with a rise of 45% for the other four-fifths of American households. But redistribution makes up for some of that. So reading it, I was struck again by how, depending on the story you want to tell, the picture changes dramatically. But I think what I was most struck by is thinking about all the gains on the lower end of the income distribution and wondering how lasting those will be because it's been such an extraordinary time in the labor market over the past two years. And you see a lot of churn among different types of jobs, particularly retail and hospitality, which are kind of often really tough jobs for people at the lower end of the income distribution. You see them trading up, getting higher wages, just looking for better types of work. So I wonder how lasting this will be. So 
One of the things I liked about Simon's piece is I think it changes what you might call the standard model of American politics, which if you listen to a lot of politicians, you'd get the impression that things were pretty great in the 80s and 90s. And since maybe the mid 2000s, they've been bad. The financial crisis was awful, as indeed it was. And things have been going steadily downhill. And Donald Trump was elected in 2016, partly because the US economy has not been delivering for your average American. If you look at the charts in Simon's piece, that story is pretty much backwards, right? I mean, incomes declined pretty steadily in the 80s and the early part of the 90s. And there's been a pretty steady recovery since then, you know, whatever method you use to adjust incomes for inflation. So that sort of rather flips the way I think a lot of people think about American politics and the relation between the economy and elections on its head. One thing it reminded me of is the, you know, Mark Twain's admonition about lies, damn lies and statistics, you know, and actually these sort of very boring things like GDP deflators matter a lot in the portrait you want to portray of, of America. And I've actually seen in the same chart, one organization put wages and use CPIU, which deflates very fast, and then put CEO pay and use a, a sort of lighter deflator to exaggerate the difference between the two. And of course, you know, no one's reading the footnote, and so they don't see the difference between them. But uh, I, I think that for some people, a certain brand of declinism is very potent, um, whether or not you locate the best era as the 1950s or the 1980s, you know, you can sort of massage the series to, to give you that impression. And then Lastly, I'll just say that, uh, you know, I think that we're, we're slightly doing Cardi B uh, a disservice. If you remember, she did a 11-minute interview with Bernie Sanders uh, during his campaign, uh, which, is, which is good watching and listening um, if you get a chance to look at it. So she's had her head on these issues for a while. She likes those Balenciagas, the ones that look like socks. Is that the economic analysis you're referring to? <laughs> So one other thing I wanted to mention, in addition to Cardi B lyrics, are the data around comparing America's relative wealth to incomes in Europe and other rich countries. So I think we tend to be so navel-gazing in America, and it's worth looking across the pond to see how we compare to other countries. And I was struck by some analysis that we had in The Economist over the summer that showed that GDP per person in America is almost $70,000. And the only place where you can find anything close to that or a bit higher are in countries like Switzerland, Norway, and Ireland, which have figures that are distorted by firms' profit offshoring. And in Germany, which is a huge economic force, obviously, in Europe, GDP per person adjusted for purchasing power parity is quite a bit lower at 58000 which is far below big American states like New York at 93,000, California. But I think part of the reason why Americans can feel so glum is that what you get for that money is not as high as one would think. So Americans spend a lot, for instance, on healthcare and don't get that much for it. And so again, the top line figure might not be entirely representative about how Americans feel about their incomes and therefore how it translates into the political mood in the country. I think one thing Americans don't really notice about their own prosperity is that uh, countries that many of us think of as equivalently rich, such as the UK, for example, has a GDP per capita, which is on par with Alabama or Mississippi, so basically one of the poorer states in the country. There is really kind of a higher living standard. Like Charlotte says, a lot of that might be going to things like health expenditures and such. But you know, in overall, I think it is a pretty impressive showing 
Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, we'll go back to another time when economic perception and reality were far apart in just a moment. But first, it's the usual reminder, we would love it if you took out the subscription to The Economist. That would allow you to read Simon's thoughts about Cardi B, among other things. And there's also lots more in this week's issue. Charlotte and Idris, what have you guys particularly enjoyed from The Economist recently? Our fellow in D.C., Becca Jackson, wrote an excellent piece on corporal punishment in American schools, which is still a thing. It happens actually in Mississippi. I think it's a great read. A good compliment to our discussion is the business piece that we have about how the young spend their money, the rubric for which is they are woke, broke, and complicated. And so I advise that people go take a look at that. The other thing I'd highlight is our cover story this week by Tom Wainwright on Disney is just really strong. And our understanding of that company, which is now a century old, is worth a read. Yep, those are all really good. Economist.com slash US pod is the link if you want to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. In America, you ought to be able to raise a family on one single income. We used to be able to do this. Something happened. Global when he was running to be Arizona's senator, Blake Masters had a wistful message. Can't really do it anymore. I think that's a huge problem. So why don't politicians talk about it? To go back to a different kind of economy. He's not alone in that nostalgia. When you ask people how America's way of life has changed since the 1950s, half think it's got worse. Post-war America with a building boom and a baby boom. All trails led to the promised land, suburbia. The new cars jamming the The decade has its economic appeal. Median incomes rose steadily, and cars and houses and appliances to put in those houses all became within reach of many. And the way Blake Masters tells it, it was all paid for by a single breadwinner with perhaps a good union job. But the decade wasn't as prosperous as many remember. It was not great for workers who were female or non-white. There were three recessions in 10 years. Inflation pinballed between minus 2 and plus 9%. America and paralysis spreads over the huge steel industry as whole armies of workers walk off the job in a dispute over a pension plan. Union membership peaked in the 1950s when about a third of private sector workers were members. And they were powerful. A simultaneous coal strike adds to a work stoppage affecting nearly every field of manufacture, a major blow to American economy. But the jobs were hard. Compared with 2018, the average person worked a third more hours. Work was more physically exhausting and often dangerous with few safety precautions. On the whole, people lived almost a decade less than they do today. And it wasn't just men working. About a third of women had jobs in the 1950s, compared with just over half today. Yet, even so, living standards weren't all that high. In 1961, a British journalist visited Harlem. He toured a squalid flat with a caving-in ceiling and plaster falling off the walls. Mrs Williams lives here with her four children. She also has two lodgers. Her rent works out at about 33 and 6 a week. She's never seen her landlord. At the time, more than one in five Americans lived in poverty. Today, taking into account government support, fewer than one in 12 do. 
It was 16 degrees below freezing, and Mrs. Williams had had no heating for two days, although it's supposed to be provided by the landlord. In 1962, in The Other America, social critic Michael Harrington wrote about this unseen poverty, hidden in rural isolation or urban slums far from the gleaming suburbs. There is a familiar America, he wrote. It's celebrated in speeches and advertised on television. It has the highest mass standard of living the world has ever known. But another America existed in the 1950s too. Idris, why do you think it is that the 1950s seem to attract so much nostalgia in American political discourse? Well, I I think a lot of it is preserved in popular culture. It's this post-war high, you know, Eisenhower is president, building highways, we've got fancy cars, uh, everyone dressed really well, and so that lends itself to uh, period pieces that sort of amp up the glamour of the era. But as I think we, we point out pretty well, that can overstate just how well things were working. You know, the book we talked about, Michael Harrington's Other America, which a lot of people thought helped push the country to launching the war on poverty, sort of uncovers just the huge amount of poverty that was hidden then. And one of the chapters that he has is about, in particular, how senior Americans, those who are elderly, are basically the poorest group in the country, that people would retire basically without savings and not have enough even to eat. Hunger and actual starvation was present in in the country in a way that it isn't today. And a lot of the programs that we created in the 1960s to address that had the effect of turning that dynamic on its head. So now it's elderly Americans who are the most financially cushioned because Social Security and Medicare are big universal programs that didn't exist in the 50s. You know, we have other problems now, but, you know, some of the big ones, not not to mention discrimination that we had against uh, African Americans and women in particular, you know, all, all of those things, I think we've made tremendous progress against. I think it's worth noting that nostalgia is not unique to American politics. So if you look across different countries, Putin tapped into sorrow about the decline of Russian power in the Soviet Union. Brexit was very much a vote of nostalgia. Obviously, Donald Trump in America, but you see across Europe in places that have had a big surge in populism, that populism and nostalgia go hand in hand. And it is a real blending, I think, of economic and cultural nostalgia. But the people who are most nostalgic are aligned with those who vote in a populist manner. So in America, for instance, white people without a college degree are much more likely than college graduates to say that America has changed for the worse since the 1950s. Yeah, there's a really powerful cultural nostalgia for the 1950s, particularly on the right. But there's also a bit of economic nostalgia on the left, right? I mean, Idris, do you remember one of the things that brought Elizabeth Warren's economic commentary to prominence was when she wrote about the dual income trap and actually in some senses how much worse off Americans were with two incomes than they had been in the era when families had one. Yeah, yeah. She argued in 2002 in a book that basically this grand competition caused by two earners was basically just amping up the stakes and it was an arms race effectively that yielded really not that great results. But thinking back on why you might think that the 1950s were a better time, if you take the sort of famous formulation of what conservatism was, I think from William Buckley, it was a conservative was someone who stands athwart history yelling stop. You have to think that there was something good about either the present moment of, or history. And I think that you know when conservatives imagine what was good about the 1950s, they think maybe not about poverty and discrimination, but they think about moral 
purity of some kind. And that, that could be defined different ways. It could be a more clearly Christian nation in which prayer was common in schools. It could be that they think that families were more stable, that marriage was more common and much more of a norm. And that has a, you know, implications of its own. But I, I can understand the nostalgia for for those sorts of feelings. And that relates to the sense that, you know, America is just changing dramatically. I do think that the last element of nostalgia that I'd point to, because I think it's playing out in a really concrete way, and sorry to beat the drum on this consistently, but is nostalgia for manufacturing and nostalgia for a type of American employment that supports middle-class families. You hear politicians talk about this endlessly, and they have endlessly discussed this, but the difference now is there are really big policies to try to insert the federal government in recreating that type of opportunity, economic opportunity, particularly within the sphere of manufacturing. The last thing that I think is really interesting about the 1950s is, as we've discussed, people often look back on it as this kind of golden era. But it was also a golden era for sort of paranoid fantasies, particularly on the right. You had McCarthyism in the 50s, you had the John Birch Society. So it's not really the case that incomes were rising and everyone was prosperous and politics was good and orderly. There was some really, really wild stuff politically Okay, we'll be back in a moment to look at whether rising incomes are making inequality worse or better. Idris, people care about incomes in America because obviously incomes are really important, but also because what's happening to American incomes has a bearing on another thing that people care about politically, which is inequality. Yeah, that is right. Um, inequality, I think, could fairly be called, I think, the dominant issue of the last decade or so. And to get a sense of how much rising incomes were or were not lifting all boats, I talked to Betsy Stevenson, who is an economist at the University of Michigan. But before that, she was an advisor to uh, Barack Obama. And I asked her about these changes and uh, precisely which incomes have been rising the fastest. This is really going to depend on the time horizon that you're looking at, um, because you know, what we've really seen in the, you know, last two to three years over the course of the pandemic is we actually saw incomes rising a lot for people at the very bottom of the income distribution. And then, of course, we see corporate profits for really big corporations and the very, very top of the income distribution are billionaires, which we can, you know, count because they're they're a small enough number. Their incomes have gone up. But because of inflation, hasn't been a great time for the incomes of the vast majority of people. But across the board, um, the pressures in the labor market have really pushed us towards a somewhat of a reduction in inequality, at least if you're looking at that sort of 90-10 ratio. So do the lower, middle, and upper classes experience inflation in the same way? Basically, does inflation sort of interact with these trends on inequality that you've been talking about? Well, you know, inflation is a generalized rise in prices, which means that on average, uh, prices are going up. Some are going up more, some are going up less. You know, when it's really being driven by energy prices, gas, home heating, that's having a pretty big impact on the bottom end of the income distribution because that's a really big share of their household income. So even if their wages are keeping up with inflation, as in the overall number, if we were looking at inflation based on the bundle of goods they buy, maybe it, you know not keeping up because they're buying the things that 
where we see the most inflation. And then more of a long-term question, but if you look at the sort of decades-long data that the CBO compiles on earnings after taxes and transfers are taken into effect, you see that for the lowest quintile of, of income earners, you know, there seems to be a, a steady amount of growth, not as high as the top, but it's the sort of middle bunch that looks to be lagging, at least in, in their data. Do you think, based on that or, or other data, that it's fair to say that the middle class has been slightly left out, or is it a lot more complicated than that? No, I think that's a fair assessment. I think the question is why, and that's where the complications come in. You know, some of that is from what economists call skill bias technological change. So we've seen the wages of college graduates go up and up and up while the wages of non-college graduates have stagnated. And I, I think that's a big part of the challenge is that there's just not really good, you know, moderately high paying sort of upper middle class jobs that don't involve an advanced degree. So we've seen a lot of the way technology has changed. It's changed in a way that is very complementary to skill. And that's created jobs for people with the skills to manage the technology. And the technology has tended to crowd out people whose skills used to be the skills that the technology now has. And so those were skilled jobs, but those skills are no longer in as much demand. And I think that's been a real challenge. We've also seen overall the labor share of income go down all income is generated either as a return to machines, to capital, to equipment, to buildings, or it's a return to people's effort. And what we've seen is more of the income that's being generated is a return to that equipment, capital, and less of it is a return to the efforts of people. So then when we look at what's happening to income inequality, we've seen a growing share of the income that's generated going to the people who own that equipment. And so it's returns to people who own the capital. And we see a smaller and smaller slice of the pie for people who are getting their income through the efforts of their time and energy and intellect and skills. And I think a lot of that's leaving the middle class out. So in thinking about this, do you think that wealth inequality is downstream of income inequality or that wealth inequality begets more income inequality. I think it's important for people when they think about wealth inequality to remember that wealth inequality is fundamentally tied to income inequality. Where do you get wealth from? You get it from having income and choosing not to consume it today and putting it aside. Having that ability to put aside savings is a luxury. But the challenge is that when you know, some people are able to accumulate a lot of wealth by saving some of what they are producing today to give their kids a head start, then their kids are starting life with already a bunch of promised consumption that's living off of another generation's efforts. And I think that's the debate around wealth inequality really should fundamentally be about, you know, how do we let people accumulate wealth are there government policies that encourage wealth accumulation? And then how do we let people pass wealth on to others? And what are the public policies that are allowing some people to accumulate and pass on wealth you know, more than others? 
So Charlotte, just to begin with on inequality, can you give us an idea of what the picture has been on income and wealth inequality in the US over the past decades? Because again there, I think the perception and the reality are a bit out of line. So Simon laid out in his piece this week that in the 10 years before the pandemic, inequality wasn't actually widening. And one thing that I would highlight now is that even in January, the most recent data that gives us insights into the labor market. For every person looking for a job, there were about 1.7 job openings, which is just a really remarkable figure. That was what was announced in January for November. So the question is whether that will change if the economy takes a sharper downward turn. But it points to the support at the bottom end of the income ladder that has been remarkably persistent and in some ways becoming even more powerful in recent years. I think a lot of the income growth at the bottom of the distribution has been due to the expansion of tax credits. So, you know, there's been a lot of redistribution of spending, which I think is powering some of this. Some of it is the labor market being being hot. I think that, you know, the aggregate trends over the last 40 or 50 years do show, at least at the income level, pretty clearly, to me, growing inequality at the income level and certainly at the wealth level. And there's debate about how much of that is due to measurement issues. But what you can take away, I think, is that over the last few decades, wealth inequality has certainly grown in America, and inequality as a whole in America is a lot larger than many other countries. And I guess that might be fine if the trade-off was advanced market economy that was growing really fast and one in which, you know, children had higher rates of social mobility. You know, I think, unfortunately, our sense is that social mobility is quite low in America as well. But when that becomes the issue, I think it becomes a problem because people not only bear the brunt of reality of, of these forces, but they also perceive them uh, sometimes more negatively than, than they are. And, and that perception, the feeling that, you know, my kids are going to do worse than I ever did is a really powerful animator, however tied to reality it is. If there's some kernel there, then that's important. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I was struck by data from Raj Shetty at Harvard that showed that America's social mobility is half the level of that in Canada, which is really a striking figure. One thing I want to raise with you both, though, is whether inequality is the right measure of economic health within a society. And it may be that the answer to that is yes. I asked the question because I was reading a paper back from 2018 that was written by Larry Summers and others that argued that really what we should be focused on is non-employment, the working rate, and that if you look at labor force participation, speaking of how things have declined since the 1950s, among men, you know, in the 1950s, it was well above 85% of men of working age were actually working, and it's fallen now. It really took a dive during the pandemic, but it has fallen now to 68%, and that's still below the pre-pandemic levels. And you see that metric, Summers and the other people who are authors on that paper called it non-employment. It wasn't quite the same thing as labor force participation rate, but very similar. And it's tied closely with other measures of social despair, including bad health outcomes, opioid overdoses, et cetera. So I think that absolutely inequality is a hugely important measure that we need to keep watching, but also labor force participation rate, the share of Americans who are within the labor market or increasingly not, is something that will be increasingly a focus for American politicians, for economists, as well as for American businesses who are trying to figure out how to staff these big investments they're making. 
My take on that would be that inequality in America at the moment is not that far near the top of my list of concerns. I feel that if the economy is growing, the incomes of those at the bottom, particularly after tax and transfers, are growing quite fast. Median incomes are growing at a reasonable clip. I don't see a strong reason to worry about inequality. I mean, sure, it'd be nice to have all of that without inequality, but I'm not sure that that's a package that's on offer. Now, I would agree with what Charlotte said about just the huge importance of having a tight labor market that sucks more people into work and where wages will will go up. I mean, it's hard to think of any public policy that has such a powerful effect on, on poverty, on racial gaps, on all the things we might worry about America. So I, for one, at the moment, are fairly relaxed about inequality in America. I think the same was not the case in the 1980s when you had declining real wages, as Simon pointed out, and inequality shooting up in the 80s and and early 90s. That, I think, was genuinely troubling. What's happening now seems less concerning to me, at least. All right. Before I let you guys go, I have a quiz, and appropriately, it's about the dollar bill. Question one. John McCain was one of a number of lawmakers who've tried on several occasions to replace the dollar bill. With what? A coin? Dollar coin. Yeah, it seems the only viable option. I think a coin sounds right. It was indeed a dollar coin. McCain claimed that replacing the bill with a coin, which would be easier to produce and longer lasting, could save the taxpayer $16 billion. When asked what the change would mean for strippers who get a lot of their tips in dollar bills, McCain said, I hope that they could obtain larger denominations. So, you know, the guy had an answer for everything. Question two. Salmon P. Chase was the Treasury Secretary who, in 1862, designed the first ever dollar bill to help fund the American Civil War. Whose face did he put on it? His own? His own is the right answer. Not Washington. (laughs) When did that happen? In 1869, his face was replaced by the rather more famous face of George Washington. Chase had a second big shot at glory in 1918 when he was printed on the $10,000 bill, which was the largest bill ever printed for public use, but was discontinued in 1969. So there. Not until 1969, there were $10,000 bills floating around. That's amazing. The thought of wandering around in 1918 with a $10,000 bill in your pocket is slightly alarming as well, right? If you think about what it would have been worth at the time. Yeah. Who thought that was a good idea? Wow. Hmm. I remember being in a flea market in Buenos Aires and there, because they're so used to hyperinflation, there were some discontinued bills for, I think, a million pesos or 10 million pesos, which, which were great, just had so many zeros across the top. My husband was in Argentina at a, during one of their currency crises, and he found... It was the only time in anyone's life that travelers' checks have ever been useful. What are those? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a real question, Idris? (laughs) Yeah, that is honestly a real question. Ah, use. This is a question that reflects Idris's age. But like, what are they? I'll tell you later. When we're sitting by the fire and I'm in my old rocking chair doing my knitting, (laughs) I'll explain how we used to use travelers' checks on foreign trips. Is it like Apple Pay? It's exactly like Apple Pay. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I get that. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz and Harriet Noble. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. Thanks to Lane Green for his etymological assistance with this episode. If you like Checks and Balance, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That would be really kind. It helps to increase how many people can find the podcast We also have a Checks and Balance newsletter, which you can sign up for at economist.com slash newsletters. 
You can also get in touch with us via email. We love getting your emails. Please keep them coming in. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Mm-hmm.